In today's episode of Thrive Together, I chat to Lindsay Willett. Lindsay is a serial entrepreneur, having founded, scaled up and sold two businesses, the marketing practice and Customer Thermometer. Customer Thermometer was acquired by Exclaimer Group in 2021 and holds the Queen's Award for Enterprise for International Trade, the Gold Stevie Award for Customer Service, and the Institute of Sales Management's Customer Service Award. Lindsay is now Head of Product for Exclaimer Group, one of the UK's fastest growing tech companies and provider of email signature solutions to, among many others, the Queen. Previously, Lindsay was co-founder and chairman of one of the top 20 B2B marketing agencies, The Marketing Practice. And prior to that, Lindsay was Global Marcom's Head for FinTech software vendor, AIT Group. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Lindsay. Thanks for being today's Thrive Together guest. Welcome. Thank you, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, no, it's great. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because you've got such an impressive career in their business. So first of all, can you tell me what inspired you to pursue an entrepreneurial career? Yeah, it was actually almost a bit out of necessity, really. So the first company, the fintech company that you mentioned in the introduction, which was really my first job after graduating, had a a pretty major financial scandal about four years into my career there when I was running Global Marcoms. And it made a lot of people redundant. And it, it was one of those times in my life, didn't have children, didn't feel like a big risk to kind of head out and do something on my own. It was itself quite an entrepreneurial company, and that had given me a kind of belief that anyone could do it and anyone could have a go. So I took the opportunity to go out on my own, build the marketing practice. And I think as with any business, you know, you you can start small. So that opportunity to just go and have a go, you know, take that zeal that I had for, for technology and marketing and build something that was my own was the thing that, that inspired me. I'd be lying if I didn't say it, it coincided with a really big opportunity to step outside, you know, when you're earning, when you're kind of on that career path, it's a lot harder, I think, to step out than if you have that big sort of systemic shock that I had at that point in my career. It's great to hear as well that before you left there, it was a really entrepreneurial organisation. So in a sense, that may have equipped you with the mindset that you needed to then go out on your own. Definitely. Yeah. The founder of that business, a man called Richard Hicks, was a real inspiration to me. Yeah, He used to hire performance artists to iron newspapers for people and there was a singing hoover in the reception and he was one of these people that believed that business has a real place in society to sort of help bring cultures together bring people together even before the stakeholder model was a thing that it has a a responsibility to society and community and I really loved that so working in a big company that was growing quickly where the founder was still around was instrumental. And other than your career experience up to then, did your studies influence your choice to go down the entrepreneurial route or were your studies in a subject completely unrelated? Just a really interesting question. So I got into Warwick University on the basis that I was going to study international business and French. I'd always been fascinated by business. But when I started, I think the second week in, I was doing you know some sort of quant class. <laughs> I hated it. So I well, approached the university and said, I, because my, my massive love is, is English literature. And I said, I want to do that degree instead. And they let me on the course. So my degree is actually in English and American literature, but my direction had definitely led me towards a sort of a, a business career. I think what I realized very quickly is that business degrees are very practical. They're very you know pragmatic 
And what I love is the creativity that reading novels, writing about them, bringing those sort of social, historical, geographical, political strands together is what fascinates me and, and why I found literature interesting and, and actually understanding from you know that microcosm of a novel, every strand that fed into that, that made that novel be. There's a lot around marketing and value proposition creation that resonates with that experience. So I definitely wanted to do business and, and was really into it, but learning about it at that sort of practical implementation level was not as exciting as the creative part that is probably where that entrepreneurial background comes from. It's really intriguing and I can see how the ability to tell stories and to be creative and to analyse literature can really inform your skills set as an entrepreneur and also, like you say, can really benefit marketing and the language you use for that kind of activity. I think that's exactly it. And, you know, a lot of the really interesting brands have got a lot of folklore around them when you look, you know, you look at Nike, you know, there's, you know, even things like WeWork, there's some interesting folklore tales that circulate around those brands virgin atlantic another really good one you know a lot of those entrepreneurs that create those really compelling brands are actually great storytellers too oh yeah it's something that uh, i've organized for the thrive community in the past well relatively recently was a whole workshop on storytelling because it's such a valuable skill set to have as a yeah. founder so it's really interesting to hear your take on that so looking back at your experience and time when you were running your first company, The Marketing Practice, can you tell us a bit about that particular business and what prompted you to set it up? So I know you moved away from the AIT group to then you saw an opportunity to set up The Marketing Practice. But yeah, can you tell us any more about what prompted you specifically to set up that particular venture? We'd created a team within AIT, a marketing team, that was probably quite different for the time. So tech marketing back then was quite a sort of nascent thing. And it was very much seen as a kind of just a support for sales. It was almost kind of creating collateral and, and bits and pieces, but there, there wasn't really the concept of demand and revenue generation being marketing's responsibility in quite the same way that there is now. And we had set up a team that had a bunch of data specialists, which again, wasn't really a thing back then. I mean, it, it was quite new to have that. We had a bunch of people on the phones who sat within marketing. We had classic things like, you know, PR, but we also did a great deal of our own sort of very rapid campaign creation. So we were quickly turning around campaigns and on the basis of what we were sensing and responding from what was going on in the market building microsites. Now it's old hat, but back then it wasn't a thing. And it was really successful. We were a marketing team that was admired within the industry. And we realized that all the marketing agencies that we were purchasing services off were very siloed. So there was a design agency, there was a PR agency, there was a data agency, but nobody was trying to do what we were doing within the team as a service. So that was the big idea, really. And that's why we called it the marketing practice was it wasn't going to be sort of a fluffy, creatively driven, you know, let's come up with a big billboard campaign type of agency because they were 10 a penny. It was a, you know, how can we come and be a partner to software companies and help them generate 
leads and revenue through a combination of really powerful services working in harmony. And, you know, it was quite difficult to grow that, you know, once we had a couple of clients, it was easy because, you know, you're just picking one client up, putting them down, putting one client up, putting them down. But, you know, as that grew, that was more and more challenging and required us to be sort of operationally very smart. And we were lucky to bring good people in to help with that later on. But it was really that realization that marketing could be much more revenue generative, much more responsible for outcomes, much more than just a kind of collateral and annual report creation department, and that it could be a really smart outfit and then really outsourcing that effectively. So, you know, in some ways you could probably say that, you know, the the marketing practice was as much of an outsourcer as it was an agency. And, And that was probably the thing that, that really powered its success because people could just hand over money and say, I want an outcome instead of handing over money and saying, I want a design. It's intriguing again, like how you've combined different disciplines or specialisms into the practice of the PR, the data analysis and the design service. And you offered essentially a whole holistic approach for your customers and clients. Yeah, exactly that. It was very much, you know, people were essentially buying, if not leads, they were buying a a revenue outcome and a future state of being as opposed to just something that was a a brochure or a you know a website as you say we harmonized all of those to try and get customers to a the next place they wanted to be rather than just providing them with one thing that would contribute it sounds as if the marketing practice was really well respected and had a great reputation in the industry what are your proudest achievements from running that particular venture Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you know what? It it was a really interesting time. You know, when you start like that from your bedroom, having just sort of taken redundancy, you do everything. I still know how to use Sage (laughs) because of that, because of that experience. You know, you go through some really, really baptism of fire moments. You know, you have to make people redundant. You have to hire people and then realize you've made a mistake and talk to them about that. You have to realize that you go through that e-myth journey of, I love marketing as a discipline. I love doing it. But all of a sudden, my business is so big that I can't do it anymore because I've got to run the business. And all of those sorts of things that make you a business person and you make one decision in this corner of the business and it has an unexpected effect on the other corner of the business. And all of those sort of early baby step type things all happened during the eight or nine years that I grew the marketing practice. So, you know, I look back on that with incredible fondness because it taught me so much. And also, you know, being in a marketing agency like that gives you an incredible insight into the challenges that bigger businesses face. You know, you're right in there with the teams trying to solve their problems at the same time that you're trying to solve your own. And so you do get to see some of the sort of challenges that await you further down the line when you're bigger because you're working for a smorgasbord of different tech companies, seeing the challenges that they face and helping them tackle that. So there's a lot of that there too. So from your experience running the marketing practice, you'll have learned a lot in entrepreneurship, which will then have stood you well and prepared you well for the customer thermometer. So just turning to your second venture, Lindy, can you tell us a bit about what customer thermometer was and how you came up with that idea? Customer thermometer came from sort of twin inspirations that happened while I was running marketing practice, really. So the first one was there's a company called Salesforce, who I'm sure many people will be familiar with. That's a sort of CRM software company. I remember seeing them launch their software in the UK, and it was really one of the first what we call software as a service. So instead of someone, you know, rocking up at your building with a CD or a bunch of developers creating something bespoke for you, you could just 
put your credit card in and buy it online and off you go. And that was a revelation in the industry, not just because the way of buying it was really interesting, but also instead of charging a one-off license fee, you charge, you know, whatever, $99 a month forever. And I remember seeing that model and thinking, wow, that's smart, you know, because you've got all the benefits of a sort of a subscription model and you can just build on top of it rather than just having to replace revenue every year. So that was a real moment for me, realizing that that model was a really exceptional, interesting one. And essentially, it was kind of a website. You logged into it and used it. And and I'd been building websites for years. So that kind of excited me as a way of being able to access the technology world. I think the other thing is running an agency is really hard. I'm not saying that running a software company isn't really hard, but they're differently hard. So if you want to grow an agency, you have to hire more people. You know, you can only make as much money as people's time that you can sell effectively. With a software product, as long as you've got people to support it, you can sell much more, many, many millions of copies without having to hire a great number of people. And SurveyMonkey, which was one of the other early SaaS companies, software as a service companies, I'd read that they'd got to something like 12, maybe even more than that, but tens of millions of dollars worth of turnover with sub 30 staff. And I just remember thinking this has got to be the way to go. It felt like for me a really interesting conjoining of all of my skill sets. And then at the same time, we had an experience at the marketing practice where we we had a you know a couple of clients as we grew, where we were putting account directors on those clients where we had been close to them before as founders, all of a sudden we weren't as close to them. And I really wanted to know how those clients were feeling because some of them were very chunky revenue clients, didn't want to lose them. And sometimes you would end up finding out that maybe you know they weren't as happy as you thought they were and you just wish that you'd known. So a combination of those things really you know, was, how do I do a SaaS thing? How do I do something that suits my skills? I've always been fascinated about the joining point between marketing and customer experience not just customer satisfaction, but how does customer experience reflect on brand and all of those sorts of things. And so really that's why I decided to do the customer thermometer piece because it gave me an opportunity to do a SaaS thing. It gave me the opportunity to get into technology, which is sort of where I'd always wanted to go, I guess. And it also enabled me to create something that was about customer experience and marketing. And because you didn't have a tech background, although you say you you were interested in getting into tech, did that hold you back at all? Or how did you overcome the fact you weren't a software developer? Yeah, do you know, it's interesting. I wonder whether it was possibly our biggest saving grace was that I wasn't a developer. There are lots of companies out there who are very deeply technical, who who need to be started by a developer because it's a hard technical problem to crack and, and off you go. With Customer Thermometer, it wasn't that. It very much was about telling a story about why long surveys weren't working, why one, so customer thermometers sort of like a one-click feedback rating piece of software. And really it was about going out to market with a story about why one-click was a good idea, why long surveys weren't potentially useful all the time, why survey fatigue was an issue. And also I think the other thing, and, and possibly I know we'll come on to this, but why I am now where I am with the Exclaimer product role is you are effectively the kind of, CEO, you know, when you create a product, everything from how you describe it on screen, how you drive people through it, how you reach out to them to help them with your emails, how you get them to find new features and want to upgrade within the product, how the product spreads itself virally. All of those things, if you think about them hard enough, can really help you grow without having to add a ton of people and cost. So 
that was a big part of that as well was knowing that I could wireframe those things. So, you know, you, you can, and I did just get PowerPoint out and start drawing boxes and sketching things and think, well, if I was a customer or a potential customer, these are the flows that I would like to build. These are the emails I'd like them to get trying to take out friction, trying to take out steps that they have to go through helping customers get successful with the product. That's the other really interesting thing with SaaS is as soon as someone's using your piece of tech, even if they started paying for it on month one and you're like, hallelujah, I've got a new customer, that's brilliant. If they then can't get successful or they get stuck or it doesn't do what they want or it's not sticky enough, it's not interesting to drive them back again, they'll just quit and they will literally just cancel their subscription. And in a way, that's the worst of all worlds because you've spent money acquiring them. You've spent money on, I don't know, Google AdWords or salespeople or whatever it is. You bring that customer in, you get them up to speed. That's an expensive process. And then if if after month one or two, they leave you, you've lost money there. Customers need to be with you in SaaS for a good few months for you to make back that cost of customer acquisition. So not being a technical person who was solely focused on solving a tech problem and actually someone who came at it through the only way I could, which was a sort of customer satisfaction and marketing lens, probably worked in my favor at that point in time. I certainly know of people who've put huge amounts of money into very technical products that they wanted to launch And technically the product's brilliant, but it hasn't gone anywhere because they didn't think about the customer journey up front. And I think um, with some tech founders, if they're coming from a tech background, they sometimes want to include absolutely everything in their solution, don't they? And they don't necessarily see it from the customer's point of view. And that's what's been really interesting about your success is that you've been able to pull in your marketing expertise and come from that very much customer-centric point of view right from the start. And the fact that you didn't have the tech capabilities to build the software yourself meant that you could just see everything really clearly through the eyes of your customer. And like you say, just start building those wireframes on PowerPoint as a starting point. Yeah, it's a really good observation, actually, that, you know, they always say embrace your constraints. And the fact that I couldn't dive into the product and build stuff myself was probably a massive blessing. (laughs) Every time I wanted to change the product, it cost me actual money to hire a development team to do that. So, you know, finding creative ways around stuff within product messaging or suggesting ways that people could use the product in ways that it could already do rather than adding new features all the time is a really handy skill for any software entrepreneur to have. I think I also, I read a book at the time, which I really would recommend to anyone stepping into this world. It's by a guy called Jason Fried and it's called Rework. And he argues in there quite strongly that there's such a lot of pressure when you've only got a few customers and you're trying to grow the business to build everything that they ask for. You know, if we just put this feature in or if we just add this bit, it'll be a silver bullet. And all of a sudden we'll have that hockey stick growth curve that we wanted. It, my experience has always been that no matter how big or small the features that we put in, they're just sort of incrementally additive and they don't just change the game overnight on a hockey stick basis. So, you know, that is an important thing as well that, that you know, you need to really question kind of why you're adding stuff. And, and if you if you don't have the capability to add it in, in a way, that's probably a really helpful barrier, kind of like locking the chocolate away from yourself <laughs> kind of a thing. And that's been a really interesting lesson that you've learned as well, That because often we associate innovation with tech development, I don't know, um, research and development or 
massive media attractive innovations, but actually in my eyes, I always think one of the most effective ways to, to innovate, particularly for solopreneurs, is to do things incrementally, step by step. And then that seems to be the approach you've taken with your SaaS service. That's exactly right. And I think I have so many people that I've spoken to over the years who've either come up to me at the end of events that I've presented at, or I've just been in meetings where people want to know about starting businesses. And so many of them say, you know, I'd love to start my own business once I've got a great idea. And I kind of say to people, do you know what, in a way, if you've had an idea nobody else has had, you're probably not onto something. It doesn't require a good idea. It requires you to start and execute well. You can, and many, many successful businesses do, just find something that's being executed badly and improve on it. Mm, Um, I think that's really good advice there. Yeah, I think that's spot on. What would you say has been your proudest achievement from running Customer Thermometer? Do you know, definitely going to Buckingham Palace to get the Queen's Award. It was amazing just driving through the gates there you know you went there as a kid you know your parents took you to see Buckingham Palace and it was a landmark and then all of a sudden you're driving through to sort of get the award and go to the reception we'd work really hard to get our software out there on the internet and and to get it out there globally and it was a recognition of sort of international trade and, and growth in that so yeah I loved it and it's really nice that the palace does that and that there is that opportunity for people to have that recognition no matter how small you don't have to be massive to win a queen's award you just have to be growing and it's free to enter which is a really nice thing as well so that was a very proud moment oh well done that's a fantastic achievement i would now like to turn to talk a bit about how you've raised investments and also in the context of female founders and their access to investment as such. So as you'll be familiar with, there was the Alison Rose review in um, Into Female Entrepreneurship, which was published in March 2019. They discovered that only 13% of senior people on UK investment teams are women, and almost half of investment teams at the time had no women at all. And I think less than 1% of UK venture funding was going to all female teams and just 4% of deals So I know things have improved slightly since then, but from your own personal experience raising investments, did you experience any gender bias when you were raising finance? So I bootstrapped both businesses. So I've not raised a penny. Basically, the marketing practice was easy to start because you're you're selling your own time. So effectively, you just start and (laughs) open a limited company and go from there. With Customer Thermometer, I invested some of the proceeds of selling the marketing practice, albeit not a lot, to start off, and then just didn't take a salary until it was big enough, which was a number of years. What's interesting is, I guess, why I didn't do that. And I think that I definitely, A, had a perception that it wasn't for me. And I think some of that definitely stemmed from the fact that I was a new mother at the time. And I didn't perceive that there would be any support. And, you know, since that, I don't forget, it's 10 years since I started Customer Thermometer. Since then, you know, you've got the the founder of Stitch Fix, I think it was, doing her opening bell of her float in the New York Stock Exchange, carrying her newborn baby, which is just awesome. I definitely felt like I would not be able to deliver to the requirements and the speed with which any investment house would need me to return their investment whilst also being any kind of present mother. I'm sure that there are ways around that now. It certainly didn't feel like that at the time. And so I didn't seek funding largely for that purpose. I just thought, 
I don't want to be on a plane to San Francisco being called to a board meeting if my little boy's ill or whatever else. I just didn't, I couldn't see how I could get my good idea off the ground whilst also being a mother, unless I just controlled the entire process top to bottom myself. And, you know, as a result, I'm absolutely sure that customer thermometer didn't grow as fast as it could have done. There was a competitor of ours that started five or six years later, used a very similar set of terms to the ones that we'd invented around one click survey and are now much, much bigger than us because they took funding. So there was definitely some of that. And I I also think from my perspective back 10 years ago, I definitely did perceive it as a highly male-dominated world and and one in which there wouldn't be a great deal of accommodation for the way I wanted to run the business. So that perception that you grow up with that is there in the market, or certainly was 10 years ago, probably stopped customer thermometer or my decisions around that stopped customer thermometer from, from reaching its potential. But, you know, that said, I was also able to control the growth of the business in a way that suited my family and my life. And that was a decision I took and I probably wouldn't make a different one now. It's really interesting. I didn't realize you'd bootstrap both businesses. That's fascinating. And for those female founders that are listening who are considering seeking investment, what would you recommend to them? So you've talked about how you were considering your personal circumstance and the fact that you wanted not to be on the other side of the world at a board meeting and then needing to go back home to be with your son, what have you. So I think it's important to consider your personal circumstances, but what, what else would you recommend to those female founders that are considering seeking private investment? Well, I think what's interesting now is the business that bought mine is owned by Private Equity House who are very open-minded and very flexible. And I also see all over the place, you know, from what you're doing, Claire, you know, through to lots and lots of of female-led investment houses and accelerators and incubators, there is a very different world out there now. I would probably say I have the courage of your convictions to walk in with a good idea and also an ownership around how you need your life to look. And people will embrace that and take it seriously. I've seen it in many places, you know, talent to create great businesses, particularly great technology or or sort of high value, high growth businesses. People who can do that and, and who want to do that are few and far between. They're gold dust. So if you're one of them, go out and ask for what you want because you'll probably get it. I really do think the world has changed. There's a lot more support and understanding for men and women who want to be able to have families, run businesses, have some sort of balance. I do think as well, particularly in tech, it's a much more well-traveled road now. There are playbooks, there's ways to do this. Private equity know how to do that. They, They have incredible playbooks and incredible people to help you and money to get you further along the road. And you will find that the vast majority of your competitors are funded. It's not to say it can't be done, but in my world now, you, you would struggle if you had a good idea to get very far down the road before somebody essentially copied it and got more money than you did to market it. You know, the internet, Google AdWords, it's a very public place to take your ideas out to. And it's very easy to just pay a bit more to come a bit higher up the search rankings. And that takes money. So I, I would encourage people to, you know, get out there, meet people. Don't worry about you know, your own constraints, your own situation, just be really upfront about it and people will be very open. 
Oh, that's fantastic advice. And I also like your advice around just taking ownership of how you want your life to be and like asking for what you want. Yeah, I could continue this conversation for a really long time because you've got so much experience that we could pull out and so many lessons to learn. But I'm going to have to conclude very soon our chat. But before I do, I'd love to know what are your top tips for those female founders, particularly solopreneurs that are working on their own, maybe thinking back to what you wish you'd known earlier on in your entrepreneurial career, which you now know, is there anything which you'd like to share with those female founders? Yeah, do you know, the biggest one, and, and this comes from Viv Groyskop's book, How to Own the Room, which I would recommend to anybody solopreneuring it if they're a woman. It isn't just about how to own the room. It's actually about how to be comfortable with your story. So for a really long time, even when I was growing my businesses, I, I kind of, I didn't really feel like I was an entrepreneur or that I had the the right to call myself one because I wasn't Martha Lane Fox or Sheryl Sandberg or, or someone like that. I would have turned down the opportunity to do this if you'd offered it to me back then, because I wouldn't have felt like I had enough to say. And, you know, and sometimes those things still creep on me now. I think the thing I would really say is, you know, every experience that you're having is valid and is important and you should share them. Your story is valid and important and you should share that too. And even if you've sold one thing, you've still, or one hour of your time or one scarf that you've made or one piece of software that you've built, you, you've still done something amazing. And that's something that you can build on. And, you know, never think I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not where I should be because it is lonely and it is hard and you will have doubts and you will never, no matter how successful you are, feel like you are successful or that mm -hmm. you are somehow an entrepreneur and that's fine but don't worry about telling your story and don't worry about you know it not being as big as you'd like it to be because actually in telling it and owning it you learn more you share more and you'll get where you want to go wow it's absolutely amazing Lindsay. thanks for that i've been scribbling lots of notes and um, i think it's a really good reminder that we all have a story which is valid we should just be comfortable with that and I think particularly in the world of entrepreneurship and business support to so the industry in which I've been operating for over 15 odd years now I'm conscious there's a lot of discourse and language around growth growth innovation and investments and and actually the a lot of the the female founders that I'm supporting within the Thrive community are very much comfortable and happy being on their own, working on their own, learning from others, collaborating with others, partnering with other freelancers, definitely, but they're not wanting to grow um, so much their business. And I think it will be really encouraging for them to hear from you and be reminded that everyone's got their own story and their own choice. Their business path is their choice, isn't it? And, it, and it each is. path is valid. It is exactly that. And it's a really important point, Claire. You know, if it's not working for you, don't do it. it. It's it's your business, not anybody else's. And, you know, and I think that that probably harks right back to that point about raising funding. I just thought as soon as I sell some of it to raise funding, it's not mine anymore. And, you know, it has it has to work for you. It has to serve you. It doesn't necessarily mean that it won't be hard and you won't do long hours and you won't sometimes hate it, but it does ultimately have to serve you. And if 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 for you that looks like, you know, some freelancing to, to fit into other things you want to go, you know, paddle boarding or like that's really cool in fact that's that's probably cooler than anything else out there so yeah don't don't be dragged along by this sort of survivorship bias of people that are up there doing their entrepreneur thing because it's all just the same thing 
Thank you, Lindsay. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I feel really privileged and um, I'm in awe of your commercial business brain and and what you've learned. And um, I'm sure everyone will have really enjoyed this episode. And before we finish, though, I've got um, a couple of rapid fire questions. So at the end of each podcast interview for Thrive Together, I'm just asking my guests a couple of really short, sharp, fun questions. Don't think about them too much in terms of the answers. (laughs) Just uh, blurt, blurt it out. So first question is, what's your favourite quote or mantra which you follow in your work? There is no blessing that isn't mixed. It comes from Horace and it's true. The the first time I sold my business, I thought it would be one thing and it was a completely different thing. It is everything that's good has bad in it and vice versa. Wow, that's brilliant. And I haven't heard that. Who's inspired you or who's been an influential role model for you in your career or in your personal life? So... Tom Peters, who wrote a book called In Search of Excellence, very old school management style now. I read his book when I was about 14 because I was bored one summer and it probably is what started all of this. I just, I loved it. And, and he's a, he's got some really interesting sort of mini blog posts. So definitely check out Tom Peters. Oh, will do. And last question, how would you like to be remembered? What would you like your legacy to be? Oh my goodness, that's so hard. <laughs> Do you know what? As as long as I have created some opportunities for people and hopefully left a business or businesses that have kindness stitched into the heart of them, I will be a happy woman. Hey, that was brilliant. Well, on that note, um, we're going to end this interview, but thank you, Lindsay, so much for your time today. I've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Claire. And thank you for everything you do with the podcast and all the other stuff. It's absolutely brilliant. I absolutely loved talking to Lindsay Willett. She has such an impressive business brain and a rich entrepreneurial experience that we can all learn from. I enjoyed finding out about the marketing practice and how she built a holistic service which helped her differentiate from other marketing agencies at the time. And it was interesting to hear how her marketing knowledge served her well when she was building Customer Thermometer. Right from the beginning, she was focused on the customer and what they would need from the app, rather than getting bogged down in the tech functionality. And I really liked her advice that we all have a valid story, that every experience we have is valid. I find that advice so motivating. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Remember, subscribe to the podcast series and please leave a review so that we can continue to thrive together.